Secretary of State Blinken is in Israel, meeting with officials there and pledging U.S. support for the war with Hamas. It's Thursday, October 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, Israel says it will not restore access to electricity, water, or fuel in Gaza until the hostages taken by Hamas are free. Also this hour, Republicans nominate Majority Leader Steve Scalise as their choice for speaker, but they postpone a full vote. And to slow climate change, some Massachusetts scientists are looking at a controversial approach, enriching the ocean with iron. I think I was more cautious 20 years ago before it became so obvious that this planet's on fire. In sports, Bruins win their season opener. Forecast says partly sunny, highs today near 70. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Israel for immediate talks with Israeli leaders. He's reiterating U.S. support for Israel following the Hamas attack on the country. Israeli President Isaac Herzog is demanding other nations also condemn Hamas. I call upon the international community unequivocally make clear and loud condemnation of Hamas just as you condemned ISIS. They are one and the same. Israeli officials now say Hamas killed at least 1,300 Israelis. Hamas also continues to hold scores of people hostage. Israel is heavily bombing Gaza. Palestinian authorities say at least 1,200 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza by Israeli airstrikes. Meanwhile, tensions remain high on the Israeli-Lebanese border. After exchanges of rocket and artillery fire this week, many Lebanese fear their country could be dragged into the conflict between Hamas and Israel. Jawad Rizkala has more. Hezbollah attacked a military position near the Israeli town of Avivim with anti-tank rockets and then fired missiles at Israeli soldiers near the Palestinian-Israeli village of Arab al-Aramsha this week. The Israeli army responded with artillery and drone strikes against the Lebanese village of Al-Dhaira, where at least one house was destroyed. They also hit at least two other villages. Hezbollah has also called upon the Arab and Islamic world to condemn the American decision to deploy the U.S. Navy's largest aircraft carrier to the eastern Mediterranean. In a statement, the Lebanese militant group said the action would not deter it from potential further confrontation with Israel. For NPR News, I'm Jawad Allah in Beirut. The federal fraud case continues against cryptocurrency mogul Sam Bankman-Fried. The prosecution's star witness, Caroline Ellison, accused him of masterminding a scheme to steal billions of dollars. NPR's David Gura has more. Caroline Ellison was the CEO of the hedge fund Sam Bankman-Fried founded, a member of his crypto empire's inner circle, and she's Bankman-Fried's ex-girlfriend. In her second day of testimony, Ellison detailed how she manipulated balance sheets, allegedly at Bankman-Fried's direction, to disguise billions of dollars Alameda took from customers of FTX without their knowledge. She also recounted what happened in late 2022 amid a downturn in the crypto market and as the relationship between Alameda and FTX was scrutinized. As Ellison described the collapse of Alameda and FTX, she started to cry. It was, she said, the worst week of her life. Beckman-Fried's defense attorney will cross-examine her today. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The House is still in recess as Republicans try to move forward their choice to be speaker. Congressman Steve Scalise won a GOP leadership election yesterday, but he doesn't have enough Republican votes yet to win the speakership. Separately, a group of House Republicans is seeking to expel fellow GOP Congressman George Santos. He denies charges of corruption. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Boston police are investigating vandalism at the Palestinian Cultural Center for Peace in Brighton as a possible hate crime. Police say the word Nazi was spray-painted on the building stairs. The vandalism comes after the Hamas attacks in Israel. The Anti-Defamation League of New England is condemning the vandalism. Congressman Jake Auchincloss is defending the Biden administration's response to the growing number of migrants coming to Massachusetts. Speaking on WBUR's Radio Boston, Auchincloss says the federal government must provide money to help Massachusetts support the newly arrived migrants, but he also says he believes that the Biden administration is doing all it can. The president is operating within the bounds of the law and of humanity to deal with a broken immigration system. It's really ultimately not his fault. It is certainly not the governor's fault. This is Congress's fault. We've failed for 30 years to pass comprehensive immigration reform. Homeland Security officials were in Massachusetts for two days this week assessing the influx of migrants. A new report finds that Boston has exceeded some of its goals for reducing pedestrian and bicycle fatalities. The nonprofit Livable Streets is evaluating the city's progress on transportation and mobility goals that were set in the Go Boston 2030 initiative. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports. The Go Boston 2030 initiative was launched six years ago. It sets targets for implementing an accessible, reliable, and equitable transportation network throughout the city. In its new accountability report, Livable Streets finds the city exceeded its goal of reducing fatal bicycle and pedestrian crashes by 30 percent. Stacey Thompson is the group's executive director. So Boston is an outlier in a very positive way, meaning that they've not only achieved this goal, but surpassed it, and they are um, bucking national trends. According to the report, last year the city had nine fatalities, which represents a 46 percent decrease since the initiative launched. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The time is six minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community. With open studios featuring art, music, a Lego display, and an architectural wheel of fortune featuring Boston landmarks. October 13th through 15th, visit fortpointarts.org. The Bruins are celebrating the start of their 100th season with a win. The team outskated the Chicago Blackhawks at the Garden last night to a two-goal victory. The final was 3-1. to one. The Celtics beat the 76ers last night in their preseason game. The final score there was 112-101. to 101. Partly sunny skies is our forecast today. Warm, too. Temperatures up around 70 degrees. Tonight, a few clouds with lows dipping into the mid to upper 40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Windy tomorrow, though, and temperatures only in the low 60s. It is 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. In the face of the extraordinary attack on southern Israel this past weekend, Israel's long-divided government has agreed to govern together. An emergency unity government and a wartime cabinet were formed in response to the gruesome assault by Hamas fighters who killed at least 1,300 people in Israel and took hostages back to Gaza, including children and the elderly. Israel has responded with a barrage of airstrikes and more than 1,200 Palestinians are also dead and some 5,800 are wounded, that according to health officials in Gaza. Israel has now called up hundreds of reservists, apparently in preparation for a possible ground offensive. At this critical moment, we turn to former Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Barak. Mr. Prime Minister, thank you so much for taking the time and, of course, my profound condolences to the losses that you are suffering. Thank you for having me. So, Prime Minister, there going to be, there's going to be plenty of time to look backwards, but if just one question about how this happened. You're a former general, a former Israel Defense Forces chief of the general staff. How did this happen? It's a major failure of our intelligence, a major failure of our operational response, and uh, the failures go up to the top of the political leadership, but all these uh, should be clarified once the... Uh, shooting ends. We are now at war, and we are focused on eliminate any any operational capabilities of Hamas whatsoever, and uh, in this regard, change the the surrounding uh, threats in, in the, from the Gaza Strip, and uh, and we are defined species. We are united in at war and in any uh, threatening crisis, hmm. and we will win. I see. So forgive me, your your phone line is a, is a little difficult at the moment. So on to my next question. Mr. Prime Minister, you led the Labour Party for years. You're now with the Israel Democratic Party. Of course, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is with a different party, the Likud Party. One assumes that the point of a coalition is to assert unity at a time like this, as you just mentioned. But is there a way in which you hope, <clears throat> excuse me, that the coalition might shape the next steps of the response? Yeah, it's, it's not a unity government. It's an emergency government that probably put into extremely weak uh, cabinet. Uh, Netanyahu has a, a coalition of extreme right-wingers, and uh, very few people who understand uh, anything about security. So it, uh, the, the emergency cabinet added uh, two former chiefs of staff, one of them even former defense minister, uh, Gantz and uh, Eisenkot, and it adds a lot of uh, experience and uh, common sense and uh, a kind of cool-headed decision-making to this uh, the leading of the war. Uh, especially, it's a need, urgent need of the of the forces who are going to fight. As you mentioned, we mobilized over 300,000 reservists and to the to the whole population to to sleep better. At night, because Netanyahu has experience, but he lost the, the trust of the people uh, following this uh, big, uh, big blunder of, of these uh, uh, events and whatever have, uh, led to it. So you're saying that Netanyahu has lost the confidence of the people. The purpose of this unity government is to assure the citizens that the, the best minds are at work here. Is that correct? Uh, not exactly. It's, it's basically the, the second element. Mm. It's made for, first of all, uh, objectively, it's made a much more uh, kind of a, a cabinet with a gravitas. Uh, there are 
uh, for people there who understand what what uh, what's meant to run a war, and uh, that give uh, confidence to the public and especially to the forces who are going uh, probably to to end up in battle in in short uh, relatively short time. Hmm. So the political aspect, if I don't think that it's proper to discuss it too too intensively right now. We I have see. to focus on war. I am a harsh critic of uh, Netanyahu all along the. Uh, recent years, and it will not disappear. The moment the the fire will uh, stop or shooting will would stop, uh, the whole issues, the political issues, and under and heavy burdens with the Netanyahu and his uh, government uh, will emerge. So, uh, so let's turn to the situation on the ground here. Israel, as we have reported, has cut off power, water, food, electricity to the Gaza Strip. The power plant in Gaza is now out of fuel. The question emerges is that there are many civilians there who have nothing to do with Hamas. One could argue that they are also hostages. Elections haven't been held there in 16 years, so one cannot argue that Hamas has any kind of a mandate there. Is the Israeli government willing to ensure the safety of civilians who perhaps do not support uh, we, this, we and, other, support and other nationalities who are there. The Hamas, so the murderous uh, barbarian organization, a kind of uh, Daesh or ISIS-like organization, which should be eliminated for, from, the, from this uh, region. But uh, uh, having said that, uh, of course there are c- c- civilians there who, whose losses or, or, or burden we are trying to minimize uh, but it's a tough, tough uh, operation uh, taken uh, under many, many constraints. And one of them is the need to follow the international uh, law. Hmm. And we are committed to the international law. We are a democracy and we, we are accountable to international uh, bodies. And we will try our best to achieve our objective while taking into account uh, the international laws. Is there an opportunity to provide safe passage for civilians, including members of other nationalities who are trapped in Gaza? Is that something that is being considered? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think we cannot run a negotiation over the, the radio, but I'm sure that any government will such a problem, and uh, not just uh, letting uh, citizens of our nationality out, but even to make sure that, for example, uh, some uh, essentials of, uh, of uh, treatment of a hospital uh, will not be in short supply or milk for babies. I don't think that we are trying to block this kind of element of uh, humanitarian basics. That is the former Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Barak. Uh, Mr. Barak, it is, um, it, it is indeed an honor to speak with you at this time. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, and uh, maybe we can hope for better, uh, better days in the future. I do hope so. Congressman Steve Scalise wants to be Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, if he's able to cobble together the support of deeply divided House Republicans, he'll fill the vacancy left by the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, a political maneuver that was engineered by his own more conservative GOP colleagues. The Louisiana Republican is a majority whip and the lone major contender for the biggest leadership job in the House. This after Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan said he'll vote for Scalise and asked his own backers to do the same. Rodney Davis served alongside 
alongside Steve Scalise for 10 years when he represented the 13th Congressional District of Illinois. He's on the line with us now. Congressman Davis, uh, Steve Scalise says he's he's up to the task of uniting his party and ending the chaos in the last couple of weeks, which, based on what we've seen, sounds like a pretty tall order. Um, if you believe he can do it, how do you think he'd accomplish that? Well, I do believe he can do it. Uh, Steve is somebody who has shown the world what a happy warrior he is. I watched him lay motionless on a baseball field just a few years ago where I thought he was dead, and he almost was. But Steve has shown everyone that he can not only recover, but he can still be one of our leaders. Um, He's got a small group of Republicans that are recalcitrants right now. I believe that he's going to do what it takes to make sure that he secures their vote before it goes to the floor. Remember that we're in historic times. We've never had a Speaker of the House uh, really kicked out via a motion to vacate. So normally a speaker is nominated in November and then has two months to garner the support. Steve's got a little shorter timeline, but I think he can do it. And you were talking about when uh, Steve Scalise was wounded by gunman's attack on the congressional baseball game or practice. Uh, that was in 2017. You were on the field then. Um, so on that, he's also been undergoing treatment this fall for a form of blood cancer. Do you think that gives you at all any pause about his ability to take on these challenges, considering how stressful of a job this this apparently is now? Well, if Steve Scalise and his family had a pause, then I would have a pause, mm-hmm. but they don't. And there is no one stronger than Steve and no one I know that could that could do this job and at the same time fight this fight that uh, has surprised all of us. To become the nominee, there were still 99 Republicans who did not vote for Scalise. What do you think his chances are of getting those 99 on his side when the when the real vote is is taken? Well, the 99 is now down to a very manageable number from uh, public reports and private conversations I've had. And Steve is doing what he does best. He's sitting sitting every member down, asking them what is their concern, how can he address that concern, and how can we come together and unify as a party to do what the American people wanted the Republicans to do, which is be the majority party and run the House of Representatives. How manageable, how close is he? Oh, it's manageable. I mean, it fluctuates. This is this is nothing new, though. This happens in speakers' races that I've witnessed over the last ten years. And I served under I served under four speakers, three, uh, two Republicans, and uh, actually served under three, and then witnessed Kevin McCarthy, who I thought was doing a phenomenal job. And and there's always an effort to have to secure votes after they get the nomination and conference. Manageable enough that maybe by the end of the week, if not earlier, that there'll be a House speaker. Well, remember, we have a very we have very small majority. So in the end, it's going to probably take longer than it would a Paul Ryan, a John Boehner, who who actually had much larger majorities and a Nancy Pelosi. All right. That's uh, former Republican Congressman Rodney Davis of Illinois. Congressman, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, Secretary of State Blinken has arrived in Tel Aviv. He says he's going to show the Biden administration's support for Israel after the weekend attacks by Hamas. It's 19 minutes past 7.
Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes, supporting the MIT Sloan Sustainability Initiative's mission to empower leaders to act so humans and nature can thrive for generations. ThoughtForms-Corp.com and MITSloan.mit.edu slash sustainability. Last weekend's Hamas attacks have put a strain on Muslim-Jewish interfaith groups here in the U.S., but they say the relationships they've fostered can endure. Seldom is there conflict in religion where there is friendship. We are friends as much as anything else. Navigating interfaith cooperation in this moment on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Partly sunny skies today, highs around 70 degrees. Tonight, a few clouds, temperatures going down into the upper 40s. And tomorrow, mostly sunny and windy with temperatures in the 60s. It is 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia. For 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. With everything going on in the world right now... Why don't we just listen to something beautiful for a little while? The good news is you're the only one. The good news is no need to rush. There's good news hiding right behind every burden. That's the voice of Jamila Woods. She's a singer and songwriter from Chicago. She also teaches poetry and she weaves that into her music. Her new album, her third, is titled Water Made Us. It's inspired by this Toni Morrison quotation. All water has a perfect memory and is forever trying to get back to where it was. I love that quote so much. She talks about when they straightened out the Mississippi River in some places, the river would flood and kind of a reframe to understand that flooding as an act of remembering, an act of the water trying to retrace its steps and go back to its original source. And that's what I felt like in the process of making this album. It's a lot about love and relationships and the memories of the experiences that I've had in connecting with people. And so it really felt like a process of retracing my steps, reflecting on those experiences and trying to make some kind of 
meaning or new language from those memories. Before we get into the substance of the album, the album cover is of you, fittingly, underwater. <laughs> I read that you realized that you really couldn't swim. And you specifically took lessons for the cover art. What was that like? Like, did you just jump in and go, oh, snap, I can't swim? <laughs> I had some experiences when I was a kid of like pool parties and not knowing how to swim and the lifeguard having to bring me out. So I had some kind of like nervousness around deep water specifically. So I had to take three or four private lessons to get good enough so I could be in the deep water. I'm so glad I did that. I think it helped my body get used to relaxing and really surrendering to the water, which felt really fitting. There's a lot of surrendering to the process. You know, there's so much there. Gosh, we could do a whole conversation just about that. <laughs> and the way that you know, Black people in America have related to water, having been denied yes. access to water and pools and so forth. You know what I mean? Treating mm -hmm. water like fire. Used as been... fire. Yeah, used as a weapon. Yeah. Right? But the album, it feels both different and familiar. I mean, it's different in that your previous two albums, the way your art relates to current social issues, this one feels more internal, more personal. Let me just play Send a Dove. You come on when I catch hell because I love you. I get least of you. I get I get the very minimum. And I'm saying, you know, fake it with me. Use an excerpt from a recording of two great writers, Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin, in conversation about love. She says, I've caught the frowns and the anger. You come home and I catch hell because I love you. I get the least of you. I get the very minimum. And I'm saying, you know, fake it with me. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to include it in the song. Nikki Giovanni was really talking about Black men in America and the example of someone going to their job and, you know, their boss is white and racist. Because it's their job, they have to put on a certain mask, you know, smile in their face and be cordial and be polite. And that takes a toll uh, on that person. And they go home and their wife or their kids or whoever's there gets the brunt of their day. And Nikki Giovanni was basically saying, you, you lie to your boss all day. Why can't you give me that same attempt to bring a positive energy into the space? And I think this song was thinking a lot about the way that we communicate through conflict or through stressful situations. Give me the gift of just putting on a smile for me because you know that's how you actually feel about me, even if it's not how you're feeling in the moment. You were drowning every time you sent the flood But don't save your words for me I'm not your leather everlast Open your hands, we both have some scars to heal Light and still 
There are moments on this album where Jamila Woods really leans into her poetic side. While I was listening to the album, along with a few other people, we heard a special moment pop up. Woods breaks into a spoken word piece about honoring past relationships. Listen to this. I miss all my exes who open car doors, light Nag Champa in the living room, burn mixtape CDs, cook veggie burgers with Lowry's, lemon pepper, everything. I found it charming because, like, I've been married for a long time, okay? Mm. You know, it's been a long time since I had exes. And then another person who was listening was, you know, at a different stage of life. And there was another person who was listening who's also at a different stage of life. And it just was funny that we were all so moved by it. I was just curious about why you think that might be. Oh, I love that. I kind of turned a corner in my healing process and having distance and time from certain people and just actually missing certain things about them and feeling nostalgic, little random things. Who drive me to the airport, who pick me up, who let me pick from their plate, split two meals at the restaurant. That's not something we usually hear or feel allowed to say. It's usually like, it's good that you're getting over them or moving on. And, you know, that is good, too. But I think it's so undeniable the way that we impact each other and just like water running through over land, like it leaves an imprint. And to kind of celebrate that and not feel shame around it felt important. Why I look at the camera like I'm in love. Why I always stay longer than I should. I never left any one of them. Not really. I just, I just went, somewhere. went somewhere new. That's Jamila Woods. Her new album is called Water Made Us. Jamila Woods, thank you so much for talking with us about this. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. And in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, residents of Gaza trying to survive, cut off from food, water, and fuel as the Israeli war continues. It's 7.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Inspire a whole new generation of learners with an education degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu. Elliott Community Human Services. Two community behavioral health centers open 24-7 in Danvers and Lynn. ElliottCHS.org. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice on View Now. Learn more at PEM.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel today, emphasizing U.S. support as the Israeli military prepares for a possible ground assault in Gaza targeting Hamas. In Brussels, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin appeared alongside NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg ahead of talks focusing largely on Hamas. I know you share our outrage at the terrorist attack uh, on Israel uh, by Hamas here recently. Uh, and also our determination to support Israel's right to defend itself. Hundreds of U.S. citizens are among those trapped in Gaza. Members of the House Republican Conference want Majority Leader Steve Scalise to be the next Speaker of the House. 
Scalise defeated Republican Jim Jordan of Ohio in yesterday's closed-door vote. Despite that vote, NPR's Deidre Walsh says it's still not clear Scalise has enough support to replace ousted Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Scalise is still facing a lot of resistance from fellow Republicans. He won the internal vote. He had 113 votes to 99 for Jordan. But Scalise needs 217 to be elected by the full House. Jordan quickly got behind Scalise after he won the internal vote. But some of Jordan's supporters say they still want to vote for him on the floor. That's NPR's Deidre Walsh. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Among the Americans trapped in Gaza is a woman from Medway and her family. Wafa Abu Zaid has been visiting family in Gaza with her husband and 18-month-old son. She says her son can't sleep because of the constant bombing. He's, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't know what's going on. But every time when he hears like a lot of sounds... He will like look at me like he wants like explanation what's going on. I don't know what to say. The only thing I tell him like this is a fireworks. This is the only thing I tell him. The family was supposed to fly back to Massachusetts tomorrow. It's now unclear when they might be able to leave. This is the second day civilians have been without access to water, fuel, or electricity. Harvard officials say they do not condone a private group calling out its student groups that signed on to a statement about the Hamas attack on Israel. That statement issued last weekend seemingly blamed Israel for the attack. Yesterday, a truck with a digital screen showing the names and information of students and groups that signed the statement drove around Harvard Square labeling them anti-Semites. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is not giving up on her push for a 2% tax on large real estate transactions. Her proposal would tax any home sale over $2 million. The fee would go to Boston for affordable housing initiatives. Wu's been pushing for that tax since last year. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering bills designed to boost access to hiking trails for people of all abilities. Several people with mobility differences who testified in favor of the proposal at a hearing yesterday say there are very few accessible trails. Amy Sugihara from Northampton shared her experiences hiking despite some of her challenges. I felt energized, joyful, calm, soothed, and able, like I had agency again. That sense of freedom, of fully living, spills over into everyday life. The proposal would establish a working group to review the accessibility of trails in the state and potential improvements. The time is 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. The Bruins opened their 100th season by beating Chicago last night. The team outscored the Blackhawks by two goals with a final of 3-1. to one. The Celtics' preseason game against Philadelphia also ended in a win. The final score there was 112-101. to 101. Partly sunny skies is our forecast today with highs around 70. A few clouds tonight with lows in the upper 40s. 55 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at 
carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Gaza has plunged into darkness. The 139-square-mile enclave is home to more than 2 million Palestinians. It's been under a land, air, and sea blockade that has restricted the movement of people and basic goods for some 16 years now. But the territory is now completely blocked off. Israel has cut off food, fuel, water, and electricity from entering. The power plant is no longer operating. And this, while Israeli forces are continuing airstrikes that have so far killed more than 1,200 Palestinians and wounded 5,800 others, this according to the Gaza Health Ministry. All this is retaliation for the massive and unprecedented attack Hamas launched on Israel Saturday that also killed at least 1,300 people. A ground invasion also appears to be in the works. For more on this, we're bringing in our co-host Leila Fadl, who's on the line from Jerusalem. Leila, what do we know about what's happening inside Gaza right now? Yeah, I've been calling people overnight and this morning inside, watching the videos that are coming out. And it's not homes reduced to rubble A there, it's entire blocks. And among those killed in the airstrikes are entire families. Palestinians in Gaza I've been speaking with say they've been moving from one neighborhood to the next, looking for a place to be safe. But they say there's nowhere safe. They can't find a place. Even U.N. schools where Palestinians typically flee for safety have been hit. 11 people from the U.N. Palestinian Refugee Agency have been killed. The crossing into Egypt is closed and has been struck at least three times. And remember, Palestinians can't just leave because there's a siege. So they're trapped trying to survive. I spoke to a mother who's giving her baby only half the amount of milk because food is running out. I'm going to play you a bit of a conversation I had this morning with our own NPR producer, Anas Baba, who lives in Gaza. I was forced to leave my job, to leave my, my work, okay, and to, get, to go to my family in order to evacuate them. I started just to think, where am I going to take them? Where am I going to hide them? Is there any safe place in Gaza? So I took them to another place, which was dangerous, and they transferred them to another place, which was more dangerous. So after that, I took them to one of my friend's houses just to spend the night. And now I took them back to my own house, to the previous one, to the original. So as you can hear there, people are giving up on trying to find somewhere safe. And just six days into this war, Gaza is already in a deep humanitarian crisis. And with no electricity, it's got to be a lot harder, maybe even impossible, really, to reach anyone in there. Yeah, I mean, people are charging their phones in their cars if they have fuel left. They're afraid they'll soon be cut off from the world, which would mean an information blackout. And this is happening at a time when Palestinians inside Gaza are saying the airstrikes are coming with no warning. Any sign, Leila, that this is going to let up at all? No. In fact, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says this is just the start. The Israeli army says it's preparing for a ground invasion, which many are speculating means a reoccupation of Gaza. And Palestinians tell me there that they've never seen anything like this. And remember, they've lived through four Gaza wars before this. And just for context, they've also lived under a 16-year blockade. But this time, they say, is different. People are saying they fear that they won't survive, and they feel the international community just doesn't care about their lives. Here's how Palestinian journalist Wajah Abu Zarafa, who lives and works inside Gaza, put it. We are human. We are part of this world. Don't forget us. Why you allow the Israelis to kill us? Every day, without any reasons, we are innocent people. So why is Israel destroying our homes? Why is Israel closing the border and not allow anybody to help us? They are punishing the Palestinian people. They are not punishing Hamas. They are killing the civilian. And this is what I heard in one phone call after the next. Please for help. That's NPR's Leila Fadl in Jerusalem. Leila, thank you. Thank you.
Hamas continues to launch rocket salvos toward Israel, and Israel's bombardment of the Gaza Strip continues. Amid all this, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Tel Aviv. He says he is there to show the Biden administration's support for Israel. This after Hamas fighters stormed the south of the country last weekend in a massive assault, killing 1,300 people and taking hostages back to their base in Gaza. Blinken and Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke with reporters this morning. The message that I bring to Israel is this. You may be strong enough on your own to defend yourself, but as long as America exists, you will never ever have to. We will always be there by your side. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is traveling with Blinken and she joins us now from Tel Aviv. Michelle, hello. Hi there, Michelle. So could you just give us a synopsis of what did Secretary Blinken and the Prime Minister have to say? Well, both men were quite somber. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu just was describing um, the atrocities carried out by Hamas. He called them barbarians. He said this is a time for moral clarity. Um, and Secretary Blinken really echoed a lot of that. He said it's been very tough for him personally to see some of these images and hear stories about the atrocities, about whole families killed, um, parents killed in front of their children, children killed in front of their parents. Um, he was really here to show solidarity with the Israeli people at this difficult moment. So beyond this demonstration of U.S. solidarity, does the Secretary, uh, does Secretary Blinken have any concrete diplomatic goals on this trip? Well, there are some things, you know, he wanted to hear directly from Israeli officials about what more they need. The U.S. has been sending weapons to replenish the Iron Dome system. Um, it's beefing up its military presence in the region. Um, the other message is really to countries in the region and to other groups to stay out of this conflict. Um, U.S. diplomacy is really focused on keeping this contained so that it doesn't draw in more regional players. Uh, the U.S. is asking all of its partners in this region to use any influence they have with what one official called the trifecta, that is Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran. The message to those latter two is don't take advantage of this situation. So, you know, we, we do want to note that, that Americans are there. What do we know about that, Americans who have been killed or are in danger in this violence now? Yeah, well, Secretary Blinken gave a new number. He said that 25 Americans were killed, and that's mostly from this initial attack by Hamas. Um, there were also Americans believed to have been kidnapped by Hamas and taken into Gaza. Blinken came with um, some of his top aides, including the deputy head of the administration's hostage affairs office. The administration is um, urging countries in the region, particularly Qatar, to send messages to Hamas okay. to release those hostages. Um, there are also Americans living in Gaza, and the U.S. has been talking to Egypt and Israel about opening up that border between Gaza and Egypt so that Palestinian Americans can get out. And, and briefly, as, you, as briefly as you can, does the secretary indicate that he will be talking to Israel about how to protect civilians during this offensive in Gaza? As we said, more than 1,300 people there have already died. Yeah, he said that Israel has a right to defend itself, but he points out how it does this matters. And he says democracies like the U.S. and Israel do try to avoid civilian casualties unlike Hamas, which has really put all Palestinians at risk. That is NPR's Michelle Kellerman with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. You can hear that she's in the press room there in Tel Aviv. Michelle, thank you. Thank you.
This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition in about 20 minutes or so, House Republicans have nominated Louisiana Republicans. Steve Scalise as House Speaker, but it's still not quite official yet. The time is 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. Partly sunny skies in our forecast today with highs around 70 degrees. A few clouds tonight with lows in the upper 40s and sunny tomorrow. A bit windy. Temperatures in the 60s. 55 degrees right now in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. And Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. In business news, almost a dozen Eastern Bank and Cambridge Trust Bank branches are closing after the merger of the two financial institutions. Eight branches are in Massachusetts, three in New Hampshire. The companies say the affected employees will be offered jobs elsewhere. The merger does need approval from regulators. The FDA has issued a warning to Danvers-based Abiomed over how it classifies its heart pump. The agency says the pump works as a medical device, but it's not sold that way. Abiomed will have to refile paperwork with the FDA to keep selling the pump. It's the third FDA infraction for Abiomed this year. The Massachusetts chapter of the AFL-CIO has elected its first woman president. Chrissy Lynch won a four-year term by a unanimous vote yesterday. She previously served as the union's chief of staff and secretary treasurer. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Retirees and others who depend on Social Security find out today how much of a cost of living increase they can expect to receive next year. Cost of living is still going up, but not as fast as it had been. We'll check on inflation rates for September later this morning. NPR Scott Horsley walks us through all of it right now. Uh, Scott, inflation has been cooling off uh, in recent months. Prices, though, still climbing a little faster than, than most of us maybe would like. So what do forecasters expect today's numbers to show? A little bit more moderation in prices. Uh, the report's expected to show an annual inflation rate of about 3.6% in September. That's down slightly from the August reading. So-called core inflation, which strips out food and energy prices, is also expected to be a little bit lower than it was in August. 
wholesale inflation uh, numbers reported were reported yesterday, and they came in a little bit hotter than expected. So we'll see how much of that extra uh, cost was shouldered by consumers. We know gasoline prices were up last month, although they've started to come down in early October. Uh, we'll also keep an eye on airfares that have bounced up and down in recent months. And used car prices, which have been falling, could take a little bit more pressure off inflation in September. All right. So what does that all mean, though, for the Federal Reserve? Any interest rates uh, going up higher? You know, at its last meeting in September, uh, the Fed hinted that there might be one more quarter percentage point interest rate hike in the pipeline this year. For now, though, betting markets expect the Fed to take a wait-and-see approach. Uh, the next Fed meeting comes at the very end of this month with an interest rate announcement on the 1st of November. And for the moment, at least, investors think the Fed is going to leave rates unchanged at that meeting and see if inflation continues to come down on its own. I know Social Security benefits are adjusted every year to keep pace with price increases. What can beneficiaries expect next year? We'll get the official number this morning uh, once that uh, September inflation reading uh, comes out because the, the cost of living increase is based on inflation in July, August, and September uh, using a slightly different price index. Uh, but seniors and others who depend on Social Security are expected to get a cost of living adjustment of about 3.2%, and that'll show up in the January benefit payments. That's welcome news for people like Regina Wurst. Any increase is very helpful. I'm 72 and I live in California, so the cost of living is quite high. Worst gets a little over $1,500 a month in Social Security benefits. Most of that goes for rent on the house that she shares with nine other family members. She's also raising two of her grandkids. I was just today trying to wonder how am I going to buy school clothes for my 10-year-old granddaughter. She's really asking for more clothes. She wears the same thing every day. For the average Social Security recipient, a 3.2% cost of living adjustment works out to about $55 more each month. Now, that's a smaller increase than the 8.7% bump that Social Security recipients got at the beginning of this year because, of course, the cost of living is not going up as fast as it was last year. But as worse than others told me, every little bit helps. Yeah, and I'm sure it does help pay the bills. Uh, but what about Social Security's own bills? I mean, how long can the government keep up with these payments? Yeah, Social Security finances are okay in the short run, but we do have a long-term demographic challenge as more baby boomers retire and there are fewer workers paying into the system for everybody receiving benefits. You know, just over a decade from now, the Social Security Trust Fund is expected to run out of cash. And unless something's done to address that, everybody who gets Social Security can expect to see their benefits cut by about 20%. So uh, AARP is urging Congress to come up with a bipartisan fix for that. Uh, given what we're happening in Congress right now, though, that does not appear likely anytime soon. NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thanks. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Coming up in about a half hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, a political outsider won an important presidential primary in Argentina, campaigning on the promise to replace the country's currency with the dollar. It's 11 minutes before 8. I'm Scott Tong. Our look at the history of guns in America continues. We explore the link between gun culture and the slave trade. Slavery was a fact in every single colony, and of course it was concentrated in the southern colonies. And slavery doesn't work without a weapons gap. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Israeli officials say they're preparing for a possible ground invasion of Gaza after another round of airstrikes. House Republicans delayed a vote on a new speaker after the nominee, Louisiana Congressman Steve Scalise, failed to get the support needed to win. And Hollywood Studios ended the latest round of talks to end the actors' union strike yesterday, saying the two sides are still far apart. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Partly sunny skies today with highs around 70. A few clouds tonight. Lows going down into the upper 40s. And tomorrow should be mostly sunny with temperatures in the 60s. It is 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Innuendo in Natick with Hunter Douglas Duet Architella PowerView Shades for Homes and Offices. Hunter Douglas PowerView Automation at Innuendo and Innuendo.com. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. One tool to slow climate change may be right off the coast. It's the ocean. The ocean already absorbs a lot of our greenhouse gas emissions, and some scientists are wondering if it could do more. The idea is called ocean engineering, which encompasses a couple of proposed techniques. But as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, one in particular is getting renewed attention. When oceanographer Ken Bissler goes to his local beach in Falmouth, he's not thinking about tanning or surfing or hanging out. When he looks at those waves, he's thinking about carbon dioxide. Yeah, thankfully, that ocean we're looking out on, you know, uh, 25% to a third of the CO2, the carbon dioxide we emit, ends up in the ocean. He points out some evidence right on the beach. We've actually seen some seaweed washed up, so that's a plant that takes up carbon dioxide. The microscopic algae that I study, you can't see with the naked eye. Bissler is with the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And he's part of an international group of scientists studying whether those microscopic algae could help absorb and store even more carbon dioxide in the ocean to help slow down climate change. Here's how it would work. Certain parts of the ocean are low on iron, which algae need in order to grow. So the idea is give the ocean an iron supplement. Add some iron to a low iron area. More algae grows and eats more carbon dioxide. This iron enrichment idea is to grow algae, right? Then it dies and settles out and captures that fixed carbon and locks it away for a long period of time. That's Pat Glibert, an oceanographer at the University of Maryland. She says this idea of iron enrichment has been around for years. There are even some experiments back in the 1990s where scientists dumped dissolved iron off ships to see if they could trigger algae blooms. And it worked which is why scientists like Glibert say they should not do it again. What we've learned from the iron experiments is that we don't always grow the algae we want. We can grow harmful species, toxic species, and several of the iron enrichment experiments showed exactly that. Algae blooms can also cause low oxygen dead zones or release nitrous oxide, a greenhouse gas. 
For these reasons and others, most scientists abandoned ocean iron experiments for decades. It turned into a no-go because of concern at many levels. Margaret Leinen is the director of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Concern from scientists about the nature of the experiments, concern from the public, and a lot of concern from environmental nonprofits about, you know, tinkering with ecosystems. But in the decades since, the climate crisis has worsened, Leinen says. The UN's climate panel now says that pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, one way or another, is necessary. So scientists like Leinen and Bissler, who weren't too hot on iron enrichment before, now say it's worth another look. I think I was more cautious 20 years ago before it became so obvious that this planet's on fire. <laughs> Literally the wildfires, the people dying from heat, the increase in storms and their intensity. So doing nothing is, is really not an option for me anymore. To be clear, Bissler and his colleagues are not proposing widespread ocean engineering. They are proposing bigger experiments with better measurements to see how well iron enrichment increases carbon uptake in the ocean and if it can be done safely. Some scientists aren't buying it. Again, the University of Maryland's Pat Glibert. Bigger, grander, more is the recipe for bigger, grander, more potential problems. Ken Bissler shares these concerns, but he's also concerned that for-profit companies are moving ahead with ocean engineering already, hoping to cash in on carbon credits. Better to have scientists investigate iron enrichment, he says, and open the results to everyone. That way, in 10 years, when the world is desperately seeking rapid climate solutions, we'll know the full benefits and cost of this one. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. After nearly 250 years, Birkenstock has gone public, valued at about $8 billion. The company kicked up quite a stir on Wall Street, as NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. Stock traders don't really get to do this, but this time... Everyone here on the floor, myself included, is wearing Birkenstocks. That's Trinity Chavez, an anchor for the live feed from the New York Stock Exchange. Were there executives in suits wearing Birkenstocks? Yes, there were. Open toes? Yes, indeed. Burks over socks? Also present. As the CEO rang the opening bell... His entourage waved shoes in the air. One man clapped his hands with one hand wearing a sandal. Birkenstock is nearly 250 years old, older even than the Stock Exchange, run by a German family for seven generations. Their innovation was the anatomically shaped insole made of cork and latex. It's not high fashion, but it persists, from hippies to hipsters to even Barbie in this year's blockbuster. The first one, the high heel. We'll do a redo. CEO Oliver Reicher told CNBC it's all about word of mouth. Just go into your private environment and ask, do you have a pair of Birkenstock? Uh, yes. How many pairs? 10 pairs, 12 pairs, you I know? Too. Yeah, you're, you're a rookie. Unlike you know? the CNBC reporter, an average American fan apparently owns 3.6 pairs of Birkenstocks. In its filing to go public, the company described itself as, quote, the oldest startup on earth serving a primal need of all human beings. 
what does it sell? Not shoes, but, quote, the experience of walking as intended by nature. Birkenstock is always the, the second best option. Right after walking barefoot on soft ground. Reichert has run the company for a decade since the Birkenstock family stepped back, later selling the majority stake. Why is he taking the company public now? Maybe because the markets are ready, or maybe, as he wrote to investors, quote, everything has to change so that everything stays the way it is. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. Now, despite the enthusiasm, Birkenstock shares finished their first day down more than 12 percent. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Fine Arts Boston, presenting Fashioned by Sargent, highlighting over 50 of John Singer Sargent's paintings with dresses and accessories featured in his work. Explore how Sargent used fashion to realize his vision in an exhibition that asks, Who Creates Your Image? On view through January 15th. Tickets at mfa.org. And Loomis Sales a performance-driven investment manager navigating challenging financial markets around the globe since 1926. Learn more at loomissales.com. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel bombards locations in Gaza. Hamas launches rockets at Israel as both sides prepare for an escalation of war. It's Thursday, October 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, we talk with a Massachusetts family stuck in Gaza and an analyst about Iran's role in the conflict. There's a significant difference between whether they're supporting them militarily and whether they were involved operationally in this helping planet. Also this hour, although House Republicans have nominated Steve Scalise as speaker, he still doesn't have enough votes to be elected. And the U.S. dollar is an issue in Argentina's presidential race, plus the winners of the Kirkus Literary Prize. Sports, the Bruins and Celtics both win, and our forecast says sunny today. Highs around 70 degrees. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Israel earlier today and immediately went into meetings with Israeli leaders. He spoke to reporters last hour, standing next to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Blinken reiterated U.S. support for Israel as it battles Hamas. We're delivering on our word, supplying ammunition, interceptors, to replenish Israel's Iron Dome, alongside other defense materiel. First shipments of U.S. military support have already arrived in Israel, and more is on the way. As Israel's defense needs evolve, we will work with Congress to make sure that they're met. And I can tell you, there is overwhelming, overwhelming bipartisan support in our Congress for Israel's security. The U.S. is also urging Israel to ease its total siege of Gaza. Israel has blocked all water, food, and fuel from entering the Palestinian enclave. Power is completely out there. The House has not yet moved to vote on a new speaker. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the House Republican Conference nominated Majority Leader Steve Scalise for the job, 
but it's not clear he's got enough votes to claim the gavel. Deep divisions within the Republican conference are threatening Scalise's ascent to the top spot. The majority leader can only afford to lose a handful of his fellow Republicans in his bid for the speakership. In a post on social media, Congressman Chip Roy, a member of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus, accused Scalise of pushing ahead too quickly in a move he called unacceptable and purposeful. Speaking shortly after securing the nomination on Wednesday, Scalise said it was crucial that the House reconvene in order to address challenges at home and abroad, specifically the newly erupted war in Israel. The Republican infighting has put the brakes on legislative business until a new leader is confirmed. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Later this morning, the federal government releases new data on inflation in the U.S. economy. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the numbers will help shape what kind of cost of living adjustment that Social Security recipients can expect next year. Forecasters expect the report to show a continued cooling of inflation, although prices are still climbing faster than most people would like. Prices rose 3.7 percent for the 12 months ending in August. The annual inflation rate for September is expected to be around 3.6 percent. Social Security benefits are adjusted each year to keep pace with rising prices, using a slightly different measure of inflation. Next year's increase is projected to be around 3.2 percent. That works out to about $55 a month for the average beneficiary. That's a much smaller increase than the 8.7 percent bump that Social Security recipients got this year after what had been the highest inflation in four decades. Scott Horsley, Impair News, Washington. On Wall Street in pre-market trading, stocks are higher. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The Anti-Defamation League is condemning a statement from some Tufts University students about the Hamas attacks in Israel. The group Students for Justice in Palestine applauded Hamas. The ADL says that statement is obscene. Tufts officials are also criticizing it. They say they disagree and condemn the Hamas attacks. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss says Harvard should have responded more forcefully to student groups that blamed Israel for the Hamas attacks over the weekend. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. A letter signed Saturday by more than two dozen Harvard student groups argued Israel was, quote, the only one to blame for the attacks that killed hundreds over the weekend. Auchincloss is a Harvard alum. He told WBUR's Radio Boston he's angry both about the letter and what he said was the university's delayed and insufficient response. There is a right and a wrong way to respond to uh, attacks on civilians, to the murder of infants, and it is to respond with unequivocal condemnation. Harvard President Claudine Gay did condemn the attacks, but not until Tuesday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The MBTA says it's investigating why tracks on the new Green Line extension became too narrow to allow trains to travel at full speed. T-General Manager Philip Eng says slow zones on that section of the Green Line were fully lifted yesterday, but there are still questions. We're investigating everything right now with regards to that project, with regards to how this came about, and when I have that information, I'll share that. 
Everyone deserves to hear that. Service also resumed on the Tees Green Line between Leechmere and Union Square. That stretch of track had been closed for several weeks for repair. Boston's Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is offering a new online tool to help women assess their risk of breast and ovarian cancers. The tool, called Assess Your Risk, is a free online tool that uses a quiz to provide an assessment. The questions focus on factors such as lifestyle, personal and family health issues, and genetics. The tool also provides results that can be shared with a doctor. The time is six minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets on stage now through October 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. The Bruins are celebrating the start of their 100th season with a win. The team outskated the Chicago Blackhawks at the Garden last night. The final score was 3-1. to one. The Bruins now look ahead to their home match against Nashville on Saturday. Celtics beat the 76ers in their preseason game last night. The final there was 112-101. to 101. In our forecast, partly sunny today. Highs around 70 degrees. A few clouds tonight with temperatures dipping into the upper 40s. It is 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Sammy Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. A senior U.S. official tells NPR the U.S. is working to get several hundred U.S. citizens out of Gaza, which is currently sealed off under siege. Israel has barred food, fuel, water, and electricity from entering the area. And this comes as Israel has intensified its airstrikes on the Palestinian enclave, where so far, in just six days of declared war, 1,200 Palestinians have been killed. Our co-host, Leila Fadl, is following developments from Jerusalem, and she is with us now. Leila, hello. Hello. Hi, Michelle. Okay, so Layla, overnight and this morning, you have been talking to people in Gaza. Tell us what's happening. Yeah, well, there's no electricity, spotty communication. It's really hard to get in touch with people. Our own NPR producers running out of battery there. Two million people in Gaza are under siege. There's no flow of fuel, food, and water, and there's no way to get in and out. This is a humanitarian crisis, Michelle. So we estimate that, what, about 400 to 600 Americans are trapped in Gaza right now? Yeah, that's right. And I actually spoke to one of those Americans, Wafa Abu Zaida, who's stuck there with her American husband and her one-year-old. She works in the nonprofit sector, lives in Massachusetts. They were on a two-week trip to Gaza to visit her family there, and it was supposed to be a short vacation. Then this war broke out, and it's turned into a nightmare. She's trapped in Gaza. Is there any way for you to get out? Have you been able to get in touch with the U.S. Embassy? Oh, yeah, for sure. We called them immediately after... We heard there's a war, like the first couple of hours, like Saturday, we called them like immediately in the morning after we heard everything. They said, we don't have any updates, blah, blah, blah. And the second day we called, the third day we called. And then we decided, okay, the NPC in Jerusalem, they are not helping at all. Let's change the NPC. So we called the NPC in Cairo. They're not helping at all. They're not doing anything. We tell them we're not out of milk diapers we're not safe we're citizens they're not doing anything and in the meantime they keep posting they keep posting stuff about like the 
U.S. citizen in Israel. Every five minutes, they keep reminding the people in the U in the Israel to get out of Israel. Are you in a place that is under bombardment? Oh yeah, for sure. Any like any place in Gaza, it's not safe. You know, yesterday it was like a horrible night. We couldn't sleep at all. And where are you right now? Were you able to stay in your house? Are you in a shelter? No, we no shelters in Gaza. The shelters for the people in the UN work in the UN. Like I'm staying with my family house with my dad and, and mom. And what's the situation? You said you're running out of diapers and running out of food. You have no internet. Do you have power? Uh, power when we have electricity, which is electricity. We got it from other sources uh, for one to two hours. The first thing they do, I charge my phone because I don't want to lose uh, lost connections with other people. Oh, my gosh. How's your baby? You know what's the hardest feeling? The hardest feeling ever is to hide your fear and show the opposite just to keep my son uh, positive and full of energy because he doesn't understand anything. He thinks this is a fireworks. Um, mm. And every time I tell him while I'm crying, okay, mommy, clap, clap, this is a fireworks. Oh. It's nothing. But sometimes he will, when he will jump, like he will like be like scared and freaking out if I'm not next to him. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, what's his name? His name is Yusuf. You said you're running out of diapers? Yes. Uh, we're not out of diapers. We can't go out. And even all the markets, they're running because they closed all the borders where they're going to get the diapers and the milk and the food. So you're running out of milk, too, for him and formula. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other, do you know of other Americans in Gaza right now? Yeah. My uh, sister-in-law and three kids. She got pumped yesterday, while, uh, uh, two, two days ago, while she's crossing to Rafah border. And that was when the airstrikes yeah, hit the border she was, crossing. Yeah, when she when she when it was bumped, she was there. She was inside. She was inside. She tried to cross it by itself, but she couldn't. They closed it and they uh, turned them back. You have millions of people listening to you. Say what you want the world to hear. What you want the U.S. government to hear. Please, please save us. Please, I have a one and a half year. I got him after six months of IVF. Please save us. Please, I have nothing to say. I have nothing. Please save us. We have been trying to call back ABC since Saturday. Nobody's helping. Nobody's getting back to us. Please save us. That's Wafa Abu Zeda. She and her family are among the hundreds of Americans currently trapped in Gaza. House Republicans nominated Louisiana Congressman Steve Scalise to serve as the next Speaker of the House. Scalise won an internal GOP election against House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, but he does not have the votes to be elected by the full House of Representatives, and so the House remains frozen. Even with bipartisan calls to pass legislation supporting Israel in its war against Hamas, nothing can happen until a new Speaker is elected. Here's NPR's congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. Deirdre, what is the holdup here? 
He's still significantly short on the votes to win. Uh, Scalise is still facing a lot of resistance from fellow Republicans. As you said, he won the internal vote. He had 113 votes to 99 for Jordan. But Scalise needs 217 to be elected by the full House. Jordan quickly got behind Scalise after he won the internal vote, but some of Jordan's supporters say they still want to vote for him on the floor. Scalise can only afford to lose a handful of votes. There are 221 Republicans if they all show up to vote. There's a significantly more than a few Jordan backers are just not budging. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia, Chip Roy from Texas, Lauren Boebert from Colorado. But what Republicans really want to avoid is another big public messy scene on the House floor when they need multiple rounds to elect a speaker. Scalise has been meeting one-on-one -on -one with these holdouts, but that could take a while. The list of Republicans still opposing him includes people with different concerns and demands, and it's really unclear what it could take for him to win them over. So if Scalise, though, became speaker, what would be his most immediate challenge right off the bat? I mean, he has that razor-thin House majority, the same issue McCarthy had. Also, just the last week of chaos without a speaker has a lot of Republicans worried they look like they just can't govern right now. The House can't vote on anything. This comes at a time when Israel is dealing with that surprise attack from Hamas. Scalise made it clear his top priority would be to bring up a resolution supporting Israel. We have a lot of work to do, not just in the house for the people of this country. But we see how dangerous of a world it is and how things can change so quickly. The other big challenge for the next speaker is the federal government is still operating under a temporary funding bill and that runs out November 17th. So the next speaker still has just weeks to avoid a government shutdown and would have to negotiate a compromise with the Democratic Senate and President Biden. Tell us about Steve Scalise. He was McCarthy's number two. What else about him, though, did he pitch to get this nomination? Well, his experience in leadership, he's been part of the leadership team for about a decade. He argued he could bring unity after a really divisive week following McCarthy's ouster. He's more conservative than McCarthy, but just like McCarthy and Jim Jordan, Scalise voted against certifying the 2020 election results. One of Jordan's supporters, South Carolina Republican Nancy Mace, said she's not going to vote for Scalise, citing on the fact that he met with the group of white supremacists. That happened back in 2002 when he was a state representative. He later apologized. Personally, Scalise has gone through a lot. He was a victim of a mass shooting in 2017, and he almost died. Recently, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma uh, blood cancer. But Scalise says he's doing well. He's up to the job as speaker. NPR's Deirdre Walsh, thanks for sorting this out. Thank you. If you're in a book club or just looking for your next great read, NPR's Netta Ulibi can help. She brings us this story about the winners of a top literary award, which was just announced last night in New York. The Kirkus Prize is not the most famous literary award, but it's still a relatively big deal. Winners get $50,000. They're picked from the pool of authors who get stars from the Kirkus Review. James McBride won for fiction. Here he is on NPR reading from his novel, The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, which is set in the 1930s. Jonah's years of stirring butter, sorting vegetables, and reading in the back room of the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store had given her time to consider. Chona runs the store. She's a Jewish woman in a racially mixed neighborhood in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. She read everything as a child, comics, detective books, and by the time she became a young wife, she devolved into reading about socialism and unions. She subscribed to Jewish newspapers, publications in Hebrew, 
and books on Jewish life, some from Europe. She knew more Hebrew than any Jewish woman in town. The Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction went to journalist Hector Tobar for his book, Our Migrant Souls, a meditation on race and the meanings and myths of Latino. It's an autobiography and cultural commentary. And the Prize for Young Readers Literature was awarded to a first-time author. Ariel Aberg-Rigger wrote American Redux, visual stories from our dynamic history. So American Redux is a book about U.S. history, but it's not a normal history book in any way. That's Aberg Greiger appearing last spring in a talk on YouTube with the Preservation League of New York State. She's a self-taught artist who said the book is a collage. 99% of the book's images are made up of public domain imagery that I accessed from our public archives, like the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian, the National Archives. But it's also a collage of stories and voices. In their citation, the Kirkus judges said, at a time when books that challenge whitewashed history are coming under fire from censors, this is, quote, a vitally important work that dares to tell the truth. Netta Ulibi, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Conductor Václav Lux returns with a lively Beethoven program October 27th and 29th, handelandhaydn.org. AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. And the Wheeler School, for students in nursery through grade 12. Discover where your curiosity can take you at Wheeler. October 21st, open house, wheelerschool.org. Coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a look at Iran's role in the conflict in Israel. It's 19 minutes past 8. Last weekend's Hamas attacks have put a strain on Muslim-Jewish interfaith groups here in the U.S., but they say the relationships they've fostered can endure. Seldom is there conflict in religion where there is friendship. We are friends as much as anything else. Navigating interfaith cooperation in this moment on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny skies in our forecast today with highs around 70 degrees. Tonight, mostly clear, a few clouds. Temperatures going down into the upper 40s. And tomorrow, mostly sunny and windy with highs in the 60s. 55 degrees in Boston at 20 past 8. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. 
Smart Mouth Mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Argentina's peso is collapsing. Annual inflation is more than 120%. And things actually got worse for Argentina's currency a couple of months ago when a political outsider named Javier Millet won the presidential primary. His big campaign promise, he says he will get rid of the peso and adopt the U.S. dollar. Amanda Aronchik of our Planet Money podcast has this report from Buenos Aires. Argentina's government has been propping up the peso for years. But when Javier Millet won that primary election, the peso took a real dive. One place where you can see just how little it's worth is at one of the country's many black markets for currency. Cambio means change, or in this context, foreign exchange. And I know this music is giving real Star Wars cantina vibes. Someone was randomly playing a didgeridoo. But I was actually on Florida Street, which is your basic shopping street for tourists. A woman calling out Cambio says the exchange rate is 705 pesos for one dollar. Yes? Yeah, 705. Yes. This was last month. Earlier this year, the peso was a lot stronger, like 400 pesos to one dollar. People in Argentina want U.S. dollars because it's practically impossible to save money when your currency is constantly losing value. So they get dollars and stash them away, literally in mattresses and shoeboxes. But the government wants people to use the peso. They limit access to dollars, hence these black market exchanges. The woman didn't want to be identified because these exchanges aren't legal. But she tells me that when the outsider Millet won that presidential primary, his promise to get rid of the peso and replace it with the dollar caused panic. People ran to the exchanges, tried to buy up as many dollars as they could. It was like a run on a bank. So, the woman says, they stopped exchanging pesos for dollars. Nadie vendía. Nobody was selling. They didn't know how long the panic would last, how far the peso would fall. And this wasn't like one of those situations where the stock market takes a hit, but life goes on as normal. Everyone I met in Argentina had a story about this August peso crash and how it affected them. Like the very first cab I took, I get in and start chatting with the driver, Juan Pablo Espina Gomez. I ask him the question I plan to ask pretty much everyone I meet. When the peso uh, starts to get devalued and is worth less and less, uh-huh. what do you have to do differently? I have to find another job. (laughs) This will be complicated for Juan Pablo because he's already got three jobs. Uber driving, selling Natura products, which is like Avon but from Brazil. And then there's his main job working for Oreo. I work with customer uh, service. So if I have a complaint about my Oreo, I call you? (laughs) (laughs) Also turns out, not a bad job. Because inflation is so high in Argentina, Oreo gives regular raises so that wages keep up. They increase our salaries at least three times per year. It's not just some big companies that do this. It works this way for a lot of government employees, too. But that is a problem. Argentina's government is essentially printing money to fund those raises. Now, I'm in this cab because I'm on my way to a small business to find out how they've dealt with the peso's recent plunge. The business I'm going to is a shoe store. Tango shoes, actually. Salesman Juan Pablo Viganotti tells me he's used to his store raising prices because of inflation. How often is the price changing? Ultimamente, 
por lo menos una vez por mes. He says usually once a month, but in that short time after presidential candidate Millet won the primary. En dos semanas, tres veces. You had to change the price three times in two weeks. Sí. Because his store didn't know what to charge. For a few days after that primary, some stores stopped selling stuff completely. Sí, a veces asusta venir y que salga un valor. Juan Pablo Hello. says it can be scary to see the peso's value changing so dramatically and so often. He says it's surprising, but... Se sorprenden, pero... He makes a big gesture, like, what are you going to do, man? This, I learned, is a very Argentinian response. People are like, hey, it's Argentina. We're used to it. Although lately, anxiety may be setting in. The elections are 10 days away. And this week, political outsider Millet said, not for the first time, that Argentina's currency is worth less than excrement. And the peso plummeted even further. Amanda Aronchik, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. The United States is experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. A report from the U.S. Surgeon General says about half of adults claim they've experienced loneliness. So for some advice on how to make friends, we turn to some young experts. I make friends by sitting next to them at lunch or in a class. It's a little hard and a little easy. You could play with them or they can play with you. So you should ask them nicely. Try to be nice because usually people don't want to be your friends if you're mean to them. Oh, that's uh, Liliana Beckwith, Colin Sadusky, and Liliana's brother, Owen Beckwith. The fear of rejection sometimes holds people back from making friends. When you assume people like you, you are friendlier, you are warmer, you're more open, you take more initiative. That is University of Maryland psychologist Marissa Franco. She's the author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. And she says paying attention to people can help you connect with them. If you're just, like, present and you're just like interested in people, like that's enough. You don't have to charm people. Having someone to confide in can also affect the way your body deals with stressful situations. Research shows strong social connections can reduce the risk of heart disease, dementia, and improve your overall well-being. Yeah, just ask four-year-old Edith Winsack. When I'm with my friend, it makes me feel happy. Okay, so A, (laughs) you don't have any trouble making friends, am I right? Oh, no, I do, because I don't want any new friends. (laughs) Look, I describe myself as friendly, not social. So in order to make new friends, you kind of have to be social. Can I? I don't want to do that. So can I be your friend? I thought we were. <laughs> what do you? I, I, I was just I checking. I have to audition now. I was just checking. I was just making sure no, because you know we're, we're we're all we're both nice. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are coming up next on Morning Edition here on WBUR, and in about 15 minutes, as climate researchers say the world needs to transition away from new oil and gas production, ExxonMobil is acquiring a major U.S. shale oil company with one of the country's biggest oil fields. It's 8.30. 
WBUR supporters include New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Open house October 19th, neiacademy.org. AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston, alprime.com. And the ICA, art from the Caribbean and beyond in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says at least 25 Americans were killed in Israel when Hamas launched its deadly attack. Blinken reported that number today as he stood alongside Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at a news conference in Tel Aviv. Blinken is in Israel to show U.S. support as Israel prepares for a potential ground assault in Gaza targeting Hamas. Blinken and Netanyahu say the U.S. and Israel are working to win the release of those being held by Hamas. NPR's Daniel Estrin says Israeli settlers are being blamed for killing five Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. The Hamas-Israel conflict may be sparking Israeli settler attacks in the West Bank. Human rights group Yeshdin, which monitors West Bank violence, says Israeli settlers' civilians, armed and masked, entered a Palestinian village in the West Bank and opened fire at villagers' homes. Israeli troops were also on the scene. Three Palestinians were killed. Separately, video footage appears to show armed Israeli civilians opening fire at cars during a funeral procession for those killed, and Palestinian health officials say two additional Palestinians were killed. These incidents, as well as an exchange of fire between Hezbollah and Israel along the Lebanon border in the last several days, have prompted concerns the Hamas-Israel conflict could expand into a multi-front war. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. A new report finds that proposed legislation designed to help Massachusetts families pay for child care and early education would help mothers return to the workforce. The report is from researchers at UMass Boston, and lawmakers are expected to take up a child care and early education proposal next week. If passed, it's expected to cost the state $1.7 billion. Researchers at the the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution have received a $1.9 million federal grant to study how to use the ocean to help slow climate change. One technique is ocean iron fertilization, which could help the ocean absorb more carbon dioxide. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports. The ocean already absorbs a lot of humans' carbon emissions, and scientists think that tweaking its chemistry could help the ocean absorb more. The grant will fund computer modeling to help scientists plan for field experiments in the open ocean. Dennis McGillicuddy is an oceanographer at Woods Hole. We want to make sure in these initiatives that we, number one, do no harm and make sure that the unintended consequences are minimized. Critics of so-called ocean engineering say we shouldn't invest in researching an idea that could potentially damage ocean ecosystems. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. A new dashboard by the nonprofit Environment America is shedding light on whether Massachusetts is meeting its energy goals. It shows the state produced 10 percent of its electricity from solar, wind, and geothermal power last year. 
That's eight times more than in 2013 and enough to power about 441,000 homes. But Environment Massachusetts Senior Director Johanna Newman says the state still has room for improvement. While it's encouraging that solar is growing in Massachusetts, it's actually less growth than the national average. And there are policies that will help drive faster deployment of renewable energy technology. One policy before lawmakers would require the state to transition to 100 percent clean energy by 2035. The time is 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. The Bruins declared victory last night in their season opener against Chicago. The team outscored the Blackhawks 3-1. to The next game is Saturday, where the Bruins host the Nashville Predators. Celtics' preseason game against the Philadelphia 76ers ended in an 11-point win. The final score there, 112-101. to Partly sunny skies in our forecast today and highs up around 70 degrees. Tonight, a few clouds, lows dipping into the upper 40s and sunshine tomorrow. Cooler temperatures in the low 60s. It is 55 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei is denying any involvement by his country in the Hamas attack on Israel last weekend, although Iran has been known to supply weapons and other support to the group. He is, however, praising the militant group's brutal assault. But why? They like to leave the impression that they have more to do with these things than they necessarily do. It goes back to their claim for leadership in the Middle East and the Islamic world, which means their audience is not the Western audience. Their audience is the population in the Middle East. That's Trita Parsi of the Quincy Institute. It's a think tank that says it wants to promote restraint in America's foreign policy. Parsi was born in Iran, raised in Europe, and works in the U.S. And as a scholar, he is focused on Iran's role in the region. So we decided to get his take on how Tehran is handling this moment. And I started our conversation by asking him whether he's seen any evidence that Iran did have a role in planning the attack. Well, so far, there isn't any evidence that they had any operational involvement. That, however, is different from the fact that the Iranians have supported Hamas, both financially and militarily. On that, I don't think there is any doubt. But there's a significant difference between whether they're supporting them militarily and whether they were involved operationally in this, helping plan it, etc., or even giving a green light. So that's a very important distinction. Is there any way in which it would be in Iran's strategic interest for Hamas to attack Israel? Certainly. Uh, Right now, the Biden administration was working very hard to get a normalization agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel. An agreement that at its core 
is aimed at Iran in order to create an anti-Iran alliance. The Iranians are clearly very much opposed to this. So is there a motive? Certainly. Does that prove culpability? That's obviously a very different story. What is Iran's current posture toward Israel? And is there any difference between the way the Iranian leadership views Israel and the way the Iranian public views Israel? So the Iranian leadership has, over the course of the last 40 years, adopted a position that essentially denies Israel's right to exist, do not believe that Israel is a legitimate state, believe that it's a colonial invention in the Middle East, and sees this and has tried to reframe the Palestinian issue from what it used to be, which was an Arab nationalist cause, to an Islamic cause. Why? Because Iran is not an Arab nation, but it very much wants to have a leadership role in the broader Islamic world. The Iranian public, I think, is standing quite differently on this issue. I think every poll I've seen suggests strong empathy and sympathy for the Palestinian cause. But here's the big difference. They can sympathize with the Palestinian cause while still believing it is not Iran's fight. And as a result, have been quite skeptical and critical of Iran's involvement in this issue. So a U.S. aircraft carrier is now in the region in response. What is your sense of how Iran views this development? I don't think the Iranians are looking for an open warfare. I think the regime in Iran has been an extremely dire situation. We have seen how people have massively protested against them. And they know very well that they are not popular in the slightest. They have managed to remain in power, but I don't think they have remained in power with a lot of confidence. And I think as a result, they're quite worried. I don't think it is in their interest, particularly mindful of the fact that they just struck a deal with the United States for certain de-escalation and a prisoner swap, to look for major escalation. However, there is nevertheless a significant risk that this will lead to a much larger war that will drag in the United States and Iran. What is your advice to the administration, should they choose to take it? Well, um, I think our friend here is actually to try to rely on international law. What Hamas did was a war crime. I don't see how it actually benefits the region or the United States to, on the one hand, insist that we have to uphold a rules-based order, but on the other hand, in this situation, say, yes, Israel has a right to defend itself. But a right to defend itself does not negate that there also are laws of war that have to be abided by. So collective punishment, things of that nature, those are violations of international law. I don't think we're doing ourselves or the Israelis any favor of giving a green light for all those kinds of violations of international law, however horrible it is what Hamas has done. Srita Parsi, thank you so much for speaking with us. I appreciate it. Thank you. The largest oil company in the country, ExxonMobil, has just bought a rival in a nearly $60 billion deal. As NPR's Julia Simon reports, it comes at a critical moment for climate change. In the West Texas oil fields that help make the U.S. into the world's top oil producer, there's a company with some very good land. It's called Pioneer, and yesterday ExxonMobil announced that it would buy Pioneer, its biggest acquisition since the late 90s. 
when we bring these two together, it's not about cutting back, it's about building up. Here's ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods speaking yesterday about Pioneer. They have the best acreage in the Midland Basin, and you bring some of these techniques that we picked up, you know, that is a powerful combination. Exxon's plan to boost oil production in the Texas Permian Basin will help keep the U.S. as a global oil player, says Tom Ellicott at the energy consultancy Wood McKenzie. It does send a, a very positive signal, I think, of the importance of the Permian Basin to the, the global sector. This deal comes as researchers say countries, including the U.S., need to slash oil production to rein in climate change. But as oil companies like ExxonMobil, Chevron, and BP come out of a few years of record profits, they're mostly not investing those profits in renewable energy or transitioning away from fossil fuels, says Pasha Madhavi, political science professor at UC Santa Barbara. Rather than taking the opportunity to get an off-ramp away from oil and gas and try to diversify, you're seeing Exxon saying, well, I'm going to try to double down here in the United States. ExxonMobil said this deal can help decrease both companies' environmental footprint. They plan to monitor methane, a potent planet heating gas, and make other investments. Julia Simon, NPR News. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, special counsel Jack Smith goes to court today in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Smith is asking a federal judge to determine whether a lawyer representing two witnesses and former Trump aide Walt Nada has a conflict of interest. To hear the story, listen to NPR on your smartphone, smart speaker, or on your reliable radio. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, we hear from a Massachusetts family trapped in Gaza. Partly sunny skies in our forecast today. Temperatures around 70 degrees. Tonight, a few clouds with lows in the upper 40s. Sunny tomorrow, windy. Temperatures in the 60s. It is 58 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies, hosting an in-person open house this Saturday, 8 to noon, salemstate.edu slash graduate. Arts Emerson with The Book of Life, an uplifting story of hope featuring Rwanda's first-ever women's drumming group, October 18th through 22nd, artsemerson.org. And the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, Informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. In business news, venture capital funding in Massachusetts appears to be drying up somewhat. A report by the National Venture Capital Association shows that funding fell 18 percent last quarter compared with a year ago. The $4 billion in VC funding is the lowest amount in one quarter since the start of the pandemic. Massachusetts ranks second in the country when it comes to total funding behind California. A popular Brookline bakery is expanding. Clear Flower Coffee is now open next to the original bakery Clear Flower Bread. The two will operate as separate storefronts with a shared kitchen. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com.
and Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. This is Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Among the Americans trapped in Gaza as the war there escalates is a family from Medway, Massachusetts. Abud Okel, a Palestinian-American who's lived in Massachusetts for the past five years, went to visit family in Gaza about two weeks ago. He was scheduled to fly home tomorrow, but he's now stuck there with his wife and baby. When we reached him in Gaza this morning, he said the situation there is increasingly tense. I think what concerns us is the bombing that we hear every... We used to count it by the minute, now we count it by the seconds. And that's that's what's keeping us basically up day and night. I'm talking to you right now and I'm, I'm staring at two huge uh, <laughs> clouds of smoke. Uh, basically, that I'm looking out through the window. Is there any way to feel safe? What do you do? Uh, there isn't, uh, other than trying to stay put together and shelter in place. And by shelter in place, I mean we you stay in the home that you're in. Um, we've heard plenty of stories that uh, people would leave their own homes to go to what they viewed as a relatively safer home, just to be bombed in a different location. Are you trying to get out? Oh, certainly. Uh, we've been, we're, we're at least fortunate because we're American Palestinians uh, that we can reach out to the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem or Cairo, which we've done. Um, if I remember correctly, the events, it's, this whole mess started uh, on Saturday at 6-ish in the morning. Uh, by 8.30 in the morning, I was already in contact with the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. As soon as we realized the magnitude of the events happening, we could predict the consequences. Um, we provided our passport info, contact numbers, our exact locations in Gaza, um, and informed them that we have a toddler. Uh, it's my wife and I. We were supposed to be here for two weeks. We arrived a week exactly before the event started, um, and that we're seeking help to exit Gaza and understandably they informed us that you know the situation was very volatile it's too early to predict what's going on and and do any type of assessment at this point then do you feel you've gotten assistance from the u.s embassy i would say yes and no yes in terms of picking up answering our phone calls and trying to calm us down but quite honestly uh it has not materialized into anything other than just uh we know of your existence we we have your information stay put um, and if any plans for evacuation happens, uh, we'll keep you posted. In fact, since day one of the events, we asked both the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem as well as in, in Cairo um, if they could just confirm for us as U.S. citizens we can cross the borders from Gaza into Egypt because we attempted to do so at our own risk, not asking for a safe passage. We just wanted a confirmation that if we make that one-hour trip from north of Gaza Strip, where we are down south to the border, that we will be able to cross because what we've been informed is that Egyptian authorities would turn us back um, since we are US citizens that entered Gaza Strip. See, we were ping pong between the two embassies mm. for some time. And then finally, the US embassy in Cairo said they send our info to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Egypt, but they have no idea uh, how that translates in terms of communicating that information to the borders, how long that would take. My sister is also a U.S. citizen who happens to be visiting Gaza as well. Uh, she did attempt to make that trip on her own on Tuesday, 
She was at the border for about four hours with her three kids, one of the youngest who's two months old. The crossing with Egypt was bombed while she was there. She had to flee for her life with her three kids. Where is uh, she now? Into Gaza City. Is she with you now? She's, she's back in Gaza City. She's not physically in the same house we mm-hmm. are in, um, sheltering in place as well. Mm-hmm. Again, because safety is a relative term and we're, we're spending time. Um, my wife wants to spend uh, what she thinks could potentially be our last days of our lives with her family and we did her, with her family. Uh, so we decided that we stick together. We either live together or die together, the three of us, her, myself, and my son. What do you tell your son? Uh, that's probably the toughest part. Uh, he barely speaks words, uh, mumbles. Uh, so we try to explain to him uh, that these are fireworks. He loves fireworks. Back when we were in Midway in July for the 4th of July, fireworks, it was his first fireworks. So he was pretty excited about it. So we tried to kind of cheer and clap the first day or two from the bombings. Uh, we even asked him, where's the airplanes? Because he's obsessed with airplanes and staring at the sky. Again, back at our home in our backyard in Midway uh, in Massachusetts, he loves to look at planes flying around. So we pretend that this is fun, uh, but I think that's becoming harder and harder um, as the bombing gets louder, closer. All right. Oh, was that a bombing? Yes, that is a bombing. Oh. Uh, we thought this is a quiet afternoon for an hour so we could uh, put him, put the baby to sleep so he could catch up on some sleep. Uh, that doesn't seem to be working. All right. Well, again, thank you. I, I really, uh, I, I hope you can stay safe. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Aboud Okel is a Palestinian-American who has lived in Massachusetts and is now stuck in Gaza. Stay with us at 9 o'clock this morning for the BBC News Hour, where we'll have all the latest on the war in Israel. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fort Point Arts Community, inviting you to tour the iconic artist studios at Open Studios October 13th through 15th. For more information about this free event, visit fortpointarts.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel today to show the White House's support after the weekend attacks by Hamas. Economists say inflation was down last month as the prices of goods and services slowed in rising speed. And House Republicans want Steve Scalise from Louisiana to become the next House Speaker, but he doesn't have enough votes to be elected. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Inflation calmed down slightly in September. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden Password Manager enables employees to securely access logins and sensitive information all in one place. Learn more at bitwarden.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Just now, we got the latest inflation reading. The Consumer Price Index went up four-tenths of a percent in September. That is a smaller jump than the month before. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer has the latest. 
The overall inflation rate in September was up 3.7 percent from the same time last year. It inched up four-tenths percent from August, more than expected, but prices spiked six-tenths percent from July to August. So inflation is headed in the right direction, though it's certainly not back down to the Fed's two percent target. Stephen Juno is senior U.S. economist at B of A Global Research. He says the path back down to two percent will be slow and bumpy. Will we kind of just have this nice glide path down to two percent? I don't think that's necessarily something we can count on or rely on. Juno says the Fed will need to keep an eye on the sticky remnants of inflation, plus the labor market. It's still tight, with some employers having trouble finding workers. That pushes up wages, which adds to inflation. The Fed has been hiking interest rates in an effort to cool the economy and beat back prices. Juno says it's not clear if the Fed will raise rates at its next meeting at the end of this month. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Stock index futures are mixed now. Dow futures up a tenth percent. S&P futures up less than a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ futures at the moment are neither up nor down. The 10-year interest rate up just slightly, 4.59 percent, given this news. Ten days ago, Hollywood studios and the union representing striking film and television actors got back to negotiating. But last night, talks halted with no deal in sight. Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. The sticking points today are much the same as when actors went on strike three months ago. Among them, the potential use of artificial intelligence to replicate actors' images and alter their work, and demands for a bigger share of streaming revenues. Striking writers had similar concerns, and this week they ratified a new three-year contract with studios. Many in the industry hoped a deal with actors would soon follow along the same lines, including guardrails on AI and increases in streaming residuals. But in a statement, the organization representing studios and streaming companies said the actors' union, SAG-AFTRA, had made few, if any, changes to their demands. The studio said they walked away because it had become clear their differences remained too great, including over what the studio said was a demand for $800 million per year in additional pay. SAG-AFTRA replied that that figure was a gross overstatement and accused the studios of bullying tactics. On issues such as AI, the union said the studios are misrepresenting their positions and the actors will remain on strike. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. In the European Union, tourism generates, here's the figure, $635 billion each year. But there are predictions that climate change will hit part of that industry by shifting people away from vacations that cater to people who want to lie out on the sand. The BBC's Guy Hedgeco reports from Benidorm on Spain's Mediterranean coast. Temperatures are increasing in the Mediterranean 20% faster than the global average. Last summer, Spain had four heat waves during which temperatures exceeded 40 Celsius in many parts of the country. Such conditions are likely to have an impact on tourism. I'm by the swimming pool of the Belroy Hotel in Benidorm, and I'm here to meet the hotel's owner, Federico Fuster, who is also the president of the local hotel association. Federico says that he notices the change in the climate here. We used to have a way smoother nights. Uh, the temperature used to, to go down a little bit and we have a little rest at night, right? But this, this summer, for 20, 25 days, uh, that didn't happen. 
Federico is worried about climate change, but he does see a possible upside for the tourism industry in the way that seasonal behaviour is changing. We have a, like a never-ending spring. It's a very good temperature, a lot of tourism, so the business is going really well also in the low, lowest season. So maybe in the future we will have way more people uh, coming to our destination in the winter and autumn and not that much in summer. And of course other countries in southern Europe are seeing similar phenomena. Like Spain, the south of France, Italy and Greece have all seen extremely high temperatures in recent summers, along with devastating wildfires. And the science suggests these are not freak events. Marta Almarcha is a meteorologist at the company El Tiempo.es. The tendency over the coming years will be longer summers, starting earlier and finishing later, and we will have longer, more intense heat waves. The possibility of extreme heat now seems to be influencing where many holidaymakers go. Since the pandemic, cooler destinations like Denmark and Iceland have been particularly popular. Miguel Mirones is president of the Institute for Spanish Tourism Quality. Pero todo esto es un movimiento que se está produciendo, como digo, lentamente en los movimientos. We are seeing a gradual but sustained trend that suggests more and more people are traveling to the north of Spain and to the north of Europe, and that this is something that is going to continue over time. Miguel expects a shift away from pure sun and sand holidays in southern Europe towards vacations based on activities like wellness or gastronomy. It's still too soon to know the full impact of climate change on tourism, but it could be that Mediterranean resorts like Benidorm will face competition from places not known for their sunshine. I'm the BBC's Guy Hedgeco for Marketplace. And how would you like to get this letter from the IRS? You owe $29 billion in back taxes. That's what the taxing authority says. Tech giant Microsoft owes the U.S. Treasury $28.9 billion, if you're not rounding. It's about a long-running investigation into how Microsoft accounted for its profits in various jurisdictions through the year 2013. Microsoft says it followed the rules and will appeal in a fight that could take many more years to resolve. And again, the consumer price index is in. Prices up four-tenths percent in September, less than the month before. Gas and shelter were among the drivers of the increase. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Partly sunny skies today. Highs around 70 degrees. A few clouds tonight with lows in the upper 40s. It is 56 degrees in Boston. Coming up at 9 o'clock, the BBC NewsHour is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington. Presenting Fat Ham, the 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner reinvents Hamlet with a queer black twist. Now through October 29th, HuntingtonTheater.org. AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. And Winchester Natural Health, naturopathic, craniosacral, and acupuncture services focusing on chronic or unusual conditions. WinchesterNaturalHealth.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 
92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.